BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, it's Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. On today's show, the devastating effects of synthetic opioids like fentanyl have spurred Governor Gavin Newsom and other state leaders to crack down on open-air drug markets in San Francisco's tenderloins. And they've raised a lot of questions about how to stem the tide of the deadly substances. Those questions led two San Francisco Chronicle journalists to a remote part of Honduras. They identified as home to many migrants who come to San Francisco to sell drugs and then send money back to their families. The articles, the result of an 18-month investigation, showcase mansions built with drug money, rural homes adorned with symbols of the San Francisco Giants and 49ers, a kind of homage to the city where dealing drugs on the streets generates tons of money. We're joined now by two of the Chronicle's journalists who worked on this series, reporter Megan Cassidy and photographer Gabrielle Lurie. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having us. Well, Let's not assume everybody's read the series and tell us a little bit about it and how it came about. Uh, I know, Megan, you have long been covering criminal justice issues and Gabrielle, you've spent a lot of time in the Tenderloin. How did it come about, though? Yeah, so it came about because I've been covering the um, drug crisis from the addict side for many years now. And I had always been curious, you know, what is the supply side like? And it's a, such a symbiotic relationship. The drug dealer and the drug user. Um, they're very much in the same space um, all the time. And so um, our editor-in-chief, Emilio Garcia Ruiz, when he uh, when he came to the Chronicle, he you know had the same question. I've heard that it's all Honduran drug dealers. Is that true? I've heard that they've been trafficked. Is that true? Um, he posed the question to many of us, to, to Megan and myself. Um, and he pretty blankly said to me, hey, can you find a drug dealer that we can go back to Honduras with? And um, I went home overwhelmed and I decided, okay, I'm going to try. Where were you overwhelmed? What what was overwhelming? It's a big undertaking. Yeah, yeah, it's not easy to, you know, try and talk to drug dealers just to begin with and then to try to go back to their home country with them is even more challenging. Yeah. And Megan, I know, I mean, you cover criminal justice and these stories about trafficking have come up, you know, a lot with public defenders, other folks involved in the system. Was that kind of how you got grabbed into this? It was part of it. Yeah. Um, I had heard um, these just kind of anecdotal um, stories about people who had been trafficked. And um, I really wanted to tell that story. Um And so one of the first things that I did was reach out to uh, trafficking attorneys, um, San Francisco public defenders, and and ask them, like, hey, can we can we talk about this topic? Can you um, 
give me access to some people that um, are in the drug market, um, whether they've been trafficked or not. I want to hear everybody's stories. And um, so that's that was one of the ways that I, that I did start on the project. Well, given concerns, I mean, as you said, Gabrielle, it's like, how do you find a drug dealer? I mean, in some ways, it's not that hard. <laughs> you see them as you're driving through the tenderloin, but one that's willing to talk with you, um, they would have concerns. You as reporters would have concerns. How did you, Megan, go about thinking about that and what kind of anonymity, if any, you would give them? I mean, how did you gain their trust? Sure. Um, so I don't have the... Um, really like on the ground sources that Gabrielle has. And so I went about it um, by going through attorneys that I knew and um, and also by going to people who uh, were in prison already. Um, their names had already been out there in the public sphere. So it's not like they were really hiding their identities. Uh, is, and then um, some caseworkers as well, um, uh, immigration advocates and uh for the most part, it was there was an intermediary who introduced me to uh, some of the people we talked to, and then a few other people that were in prison that I wrote to directly wrote me back. Interesting. Well, take us there, Gabrielle. Um, talk about arriving in the, the Surya Valley uh, in Honduras, and what do you see? Like, what is it like the first time you're arriving there? Yeah, so we arrived in the capital of Tegucigalpa. You drive. Um, about one and a half or two hours down a highway, and then you're off on a on an on a dirt road for about an hour. Um, not much happening, just kind of empty farmland until you'll get little bits of of San Francisco here and there. So we saw, you know, on a, on a motor taxi, you'd see a SF bumper sticker, and then little signs of people wearing Warriors T-shirts. And we started sort of looking at each other, like, huh. This is interesting. and Not as, something you had seen elsewhere in Honduras. No. Right? no. Did no. you not know that going down there? I mean, you were investigating this sort of connection between this part of Honduras and the drug dealing in the Tenderloin. But was it a, like what went through your mind when you saw these signs, you know, mural for the, of the Bay Bridge in the middle of Honduras uh, in a rural part and the Giants and 49ers memorabilia? I mean, what did you th- like, was that like, oh, my goodness, what the heck is this? It was completely surreal. I think we went initially just to meet this one dealer and his family and kind of tell it from his perspective. Right. That was the initial kind of ask is, is you know, who is this one person and why do they come to San Francisco? We had no idea that there was a town that was, you know, built off of largely off of the remittances from drug money. Um, so yeah, it was absolutely surreal. We, we looked at each other and said, what did we stumble across? Interesting. Um, so it wasn't, I mean, cause reading the series, it's sort of, I had the impression on about you, Marisa, that you, you knew a lot of that going down there. You knew what you were looking for, but this is real. This is just like, you feel like just pulling the threads and the string and seeing what you found. So Megan, you start, and you start having these conversations, like what are people telling you both those who are saying they benefited from the drug trade, but also those who d- haven't, like, are they, What's yeah? What's the vibe there? Does everybody kind of know that this is where money is coming from, and are they upset about it? Are people happy about it? No, absolutely. People people know that it's it's an open secret. Um, I wouldn't say that people are necessarily proud of it um, or ashamed of it. It's it's just kind of a reality. Um, there have been people from from this village, El Pedernal, that have been coming to San Francisco for uh, decades now. 
And then they come back with money and they build a nice house. And so that makes the next generation want to come. Um, and, you know, we, we talked to one very old woman there who's, uh, who has, whose husband was in San Francisco. She said he did not sell drugs. But, um, you know, I, I asked if this was a benefit to the community. And she said, yes, hmm. it was. Um, this, is, this is one way that people can make a better life for their families. And just to be clear, uh, the people you were interviewing and the ones who are on the streets here, some of many of whom you talk to, these are not the, the kingfish. These are not the big cartel people, right? I mean, these are people who have come to the Bay Area to make some money, uh, but they're not, you know, and they are getting arrested in some cases. But, Gabrielle, like, how, how do you in your mind distinguish, you know, them from the cartels and, you know, their role in this whole pipeline? Yeah, they're definitely the lowest on the totem pole. Um, they're very much independent contractors, and they're mainly on the street. Some of them are higher level um, involved in distributing, but they are not gang affiliated, um, just to be clear. And they're they are not a part of the cartel. So they are they are just working um, by selling the supply, um, and. I mean, what did you learn about why this town? Like, what is the the genesis here of of what we see here and the connection to there? Um, well, we were able to actually trace it back to um, one man um, through a lot of uh, just a lot of reporting. Honestly, um, we, this is OG. This is the OG. Yeah, yeah. Original we, gangster. Yes, yes. Uh, it, that was an, an original question that we had for so long. It's it's like okay, this is. This is a typical um, economic function of, of all industries. You know, people follow people and there's an infrastructure that gets set up and then more you know, cousins and friends join it. And But this was also kind of a recent phenomenon. Um, and so we thought like the person who started this or the people must still be alive. And um, it, it turns out he was. And he, he doesn't accept... Um, blame or credit for the the waves of people that followed but he does acknowledge that um back in the 90s he was here uh actually on accident um which you can see in the story it's kind of a funny story but got to san francisco on accident but he met a uh, a mexican man who asked if he needed a job he did he didn't have any other contacts and he that's how he began selling crack hmm. So what do we know? I mean, you you guys document some of these you know large houses and um, talk about the guy who makes these metal kind of carve outs of things like 49ers uh, insignia is a pretty well paid person getting a lot of commissions down there. Um, you cite, you know, some people saying some dealers can make up to three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. But we also know in the Bay Area, a lot of the people being arrested are living in squalid conditions and, and not we talked about they're not the big kind of traffickers. So. What's the difference there? Like, how do you kind of think about what kind of money folks are actually making and the conditions that they're living in? I think in, you know, in any industry, there's going to be winners and losers. Um, there are people who, you know, because of, you know, luck or connections um, have been able to kind of rise in the ranks, maybe make their own um uh, sources with higher level distributors. Um, other people maybe get arrested more often or or develop uh, their own addictions. That's something that we, we've seen a few times. Um, and 
some people do very, very well. Um, but most of the money, I will say, though, even if they do very well, most of it does go back to Honduras, um, where their money just goes a lot farther. Which is true for a lot of migrants. Sure. Yeah. 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 Regardless in, of yeah. Yeah, the right. industry. Exactly. So earlier, I think it was you, Gabrielle, you made a reference to trafficking. And some of the public defenders who are defending these folks who get arrested here say they were trafficked. That's their defense. And I know Brooke Jenkins, the DA, has said that's a very tough defense to refute. What is your sense of how many of the people who are coming up here from Honduras actually are they're here? They want to come well, here. And define what trafficking would mean in this situation. Well, yeah. Well, so trafficking is a legal def- legal uh, definition um, in terms of what we found. And we should say that our our scope is limited. You know, we don't know that there aren't people that have been trafficked. That's we can't say for sure. What we do know is that a, a few people told us that they had been forced or pressured or coerced. But by and large, people had said, no, we come here, you know, of our own free will, and we have not heard of that happening. Um, you know, so it's impossible to say what happens um, from what we don't know. But from what we do know, you know, most people are are coming here for a combination of reasons. Either they're coming... Um, you know, looking for legal work and they fall into selling drugs or they come in maybe on with the intention of selling drugs. It's um, it's there's a whole host of reasons why people come here. Um, but selling drugs seems to be something that is set up. It's an infrastructure that's easy for them to get into. And to be clear, I mean, there is not a lot of economic opportunities in the place they're coming from, right, Megan? It used to be a farming community. Um, the There were um, some large gold mines there several years ago that really kind of eviscerated the land. Um, the farming there makes, all, makes very, very little money. Um, some of the schools are even uh, considering closing because so many... Uh, very young people are trying to come to the U.S. Um, and so there just really is almost no economic opportunity there. Um, but now that there has been kind of more remittances coming, including from drug money, that has uh, given a shot to the local economy, uh, created a lot of construction job, mm-hmm. jobs that pay exponentially more than um, than farming. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with San Francisco Chronicle journalist Megan Cassidy and Gabrielle Lurie. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me 
supporting the programs they love, while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. We're talking with San Francisco Chronicle journalists Megan Cassidy and Gabrielle Lurie about their series highlighting the link between many of the people selling drugs in the city's tenderloin and south of market neighborhoods and their hometowns in rural Honduras. You folks, as you well know from reading the comments uh, online, this series has generated a lot of heated reaction both for and against. And we want to play a clip from last October. We had Mayor London Breed on stage. Maurice and I talked with her uh, at KQED, and she made some news for a comment she made about this whole issue. There are, unfortunately, a lot of people who um, come from a particular country, in Hondur- come from Honduras, and a lot of the people who are dealing drugs happen to be of that ethnicity. Um, and when a lot of the arrests have been made for people breaking the law, you have the public defender's office and staff from the public defender's office who are basically accusing and, and using the law to say you're racially, you're racial profiling. Mm. You're racial profiling, right? And it's nothing racial profile about this. It's, it's, we all know it. It's the reality. It's what you see. It's what's out there. And so shortly after that, uh, Breed was called xenophobic and racist for saying uh, that a lot of the dealers are Honduran. She later apologized, uh, saying it wasn't her intention to single out one community. But, you know, based on the comments we've been reading online, there, there have been a lot of criticism that the whole series was racist, that it kind of uh, denigrates a whole country, that it uh, uh, sort of paints migrants in a bad way, including ones who are here legitimately seeking asylum. Megan, what are, you know, what are your thoughts about the criticisms? Um, I completely uh, understand where a lot of people are coming from. Um, that uh, it, it's something that we we kept at the front of our minds um, throughout this process. You know, we we saw the reaction to to Breed's comments. Um, you know, one thing that I um, I'm disappointed that we didn't get to do in the story was actually put a number to um, the amount of people who have been arrested and have uh, or been convicted for for dealing drugs. That, that are from Honduras, um, and the city just doesn't keep that kind of data. Um, but from the um, multiple interviews and from the court records and from the documents that we have been able to see, um, this is a reality um, that a very high concentration of the people that are selling drugs in the Tenderloin neighborhoods and Soma neighborhoods in particular are from this area of Honduras in particular. Um, and uh, I have heard that this was, uh, I've heard the criticism that this is us placing blame on them for the whole drug crisis. And um, I, I, I also know that some of the criticism has been uh, lodged from people who have not read the story. Um, and I think that if you do read the story, what comes through is that like, this isn't like a cool job. Um, the people who are selling drugs are in very much pain as well. Um, and a lot of people don't want to be doing it. Some people have said that they are forced to, to do it. Some just say that this is just 
it's logistic it's logistically near impossible for them to find another job. And so I, um, I I would hope that people who want to paint this story with a broad brush actually just take a closer look at it and see what the problems are that we laid out. What about uh, questions of sort of like bigger context? Did you have conversations about, I don't know, a, a story or context in there about the history of U.S. policy in Central and South America, um, about, you know, questions of our immigration system. I mean, one story can't do everything or one series, but I'm just curious, like when you hear that, you must be pretty steeped in some of these things. Do you wish you would put more context in? Do you think that that's a fair criticism at all? Like you said, um, we this story is like 10,000 words, um, and we were trying to tell a really specific story about San Francisco today and this area of Honduras today. Um, I thought that it would take up a lot of time and space and the and connections would be really loose if we dug back into the history of um, Central America and the United States. Look, if we if we write a book on it, then then maybe that's something that we can discuss. But, um, you know, I, I did interview p- people a lot about those topics as well. And at the end of the day, though, it was very difficult to make a link to what's happening right now to those kind of broader sweeping issues. One of the sort of themes of the criticisms also was that uh, a lot of the reporting echoes what Trump said, for example, uh, targeting people coming from south of the border for a lot of the problems that we face and that this is the kind of thing Fox News, for example, loves to glom onto and elevate and, uh, you know, really give a lot of time to. Did you think about that or do you feel like that's not our job? We're just like we're doing the reporting and here are the facts and y'all can you know, talk about it. Yeah, I mean, we we most certainly thought about it. I, I think that we can't sanitize or censor our coverage based on what you know, other people are going to pick apart. Um, You know, ultimately, we're here to really seek the truth and hope that that will better inform our policy decisions in the future. You know, one of the things the police chief said here after uh, London Breed's comments um, and that blowback was that there's no value in studying the demographics of potential offenders. You guys quote him in the story. We do not consider race or nationality in how we police. We focus on behavior. If we see someone selling drugs, we're going to arrest them. To me, like, I understand what he's trying to do there from a you know racial profiling defense. But isn't this exactly what police should be looking at in law enforcement and not just the low level street dealers? But you guys do spell out in the story the kind of flow of where drugs come from, starting in China, where they're often manufactured, coming through Mexico, coming up the coast. Like, I don't know. Does that ring hollow to you at all? I don't know if it necessarily does with police. Police have a very specific priority, and that is to do their jobs, arrest people who are breaking the law. Um, I, I local do, police. Local police, yeah. yeah. Um, I do think from a higher policy standpoint, yeah. though, um, you know, if you're creating policies um, based on people that you know nothing about, you don't know what's going to work, what's not going to, then we're, we're just spinning our wheels. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that we really wanted to do this story was we, we've seen so many police operations and FBI operations and crackdowns. It's like every other week. Um, but meanwhile, overdoses keep going up. Um, there are, you know, the open air markets are still there. And so we just kind of thought like, well, don't we kind of want to understand the people who these policies are being built around? Yeah. yeah. 
Well, uh, you know, there, as you said, Megan, you know, the governor made a big deal out of this. He's, you know, adding CHP offices. He's talked about the National Guard coming to the Tenderloin. Um, the I think DA, they're there, yeah. The DA um, uh, got elected or appointed initially because uh, the other DA, uh, Chesa Boudin, was recalled. She made She's made fentanyl a priority. Based on your reporting, do you think that that is really a solid policy choice that may make a difference on the streets? Or is it really just kind of a waste of resources, Gabrielle or, or Megan, either one? Um, so from what I've heard with um, everybody, uh, in, not just in law enforcement, but everybody who is uh, coming together to try to solve the drug crisis or at least stem it, is that um, there are we have to kind of be throwing a lot of things at the wall right now. Um, from the moderate viewpoint, they think that uh, the this all this like all but decriminalization of of drugs maybe hasn't done a lot of good. Um, and while you know the war on drugs didn't work, maybe pulling back this far didn't work either. Maybe for some people, um, arresting and and jailing would help. Uh, would help get some dealers off the street or some send a different message back home. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I don't, I actually don't feel equipped um, to, to say whether, what would work because um, there's a lot that hasn't been tried yet. Um, But what we're, what we're hoping to do with this article is to, you know, read it and see, you know, maybe try some new things. Right. Well, one thing that does come up that, um, again, can, is really controversial, not just here, but nationally, is this question of our sanctuary city ordinance. And I mean, you all did hear from people that that conversation, that the decriminalization of drugs and the, the perception that this is a city that is lax both in drug enforcement um, and doesn't cooperate with immigration is is part of what draws people here. Yeah, it most definitely is. And but that doesn't also mean that it needs to be, um, you know, completely torn apart. Right. So I think that we have to take everything, you know, with nuance and see if this is if this is not working in some capacity. You know, what do we do to change it a little bit? Well, and just to follow up on that, um, you know, there is a criticism, like you said, that maybe we've gone too far in the direction of sort of normalizing the use of these drugs. You know, there are people who have told me that they come to San Francisco because the drugs are easy to find and then they can get meals and maybe shelter and the whole thing. I mean, the, you know, kind of in a, in a nutshell, the magnet theory, you know, that we have, be, we have created a magnet here in San Francisco. Do either of you feel that that's, you know, Born that out. is what's happening? Because yeah. you heard about this for other cities, too, as well, right? We did. Yeah. Um, I think that it is so hard to... Um, pin the the cause of this drug crisis on any one thing and you know as as you know you guys mentioned the sanctuary cities i know that there have been some outlets that have picked out you know five words of our 10,000 word story and, and have tried to you know build a narrative around that and um but that's why we felt that we did have have to have such a long story because there's no um, there's no one great approach. There's no one thing that's causing it or that yeah. would solve that would solve it. Yeah. I mean, we've already seen some uh, obviously on the right more, you know, attacks on Sanctuary City and some of our drug policies. We've seen um, Supervisor Matt Dorsey uh, propose 
not a, like looking into whether some of these drug dealers would qualify for public defenders. To me, that seems a little far afield. But I mean, what will you be watching for in terms of policy conversations out of that? Are you hearing anything that's coming out of this yet? Dorsey has been the first one that I've heard so far. Um, but I've also heard that um, people in City Hall are uh, have been instructed to read it closely and to um, see what you know, what kind of ideas can come out of it. Yeah. We're short on time, but I'm wondering, um, you know, obviously you granted some anonymity uh, to uh, protect people's identities. I'm sure, Gabrielle, in taking photos, you were careful in some cases not to show too much that might identify people. But you also, I would think, have some concerns and had some concerns down in Honduras about your personal safety. I mean, does that stay with you today, uh, you know, as we, have, you know, the kind of reaction we've been talking about and so on? Yeah, personal safety is a big one, um, both here and in Honduras. We initially we had some security, um, but we actually felt pretty safe the whole time. We we generally went spaces where we were welcomed, and um, you know, in fact, the the towns themselves have their own violence issues apart from us because because of the wealth that the influx of wealth that they've had, um, the local gangs have come in and tried to extort them. So, you know, about once every 15 days, there's a murder. And when most recently when we were there, there was there was someone that was killed. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's it's not necessarily the safest place to be, uh, but we felt well taken care of. Are you guys worried now at all? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it, it's just such um, it's such new territory for me. Um, you know, we're I'm alert Um, and, you know, maybe dialing back a little bit on social media. Mm. But um, I I have not really felt threatened in any way. You know, there's a lot that's unknown, but I think one thing that's really interesting is that all the information that was shared with us is not really a secret for them. It's not that they've exposed something. You know, they didn't tell us about how the cartels work. They just told us about their lives. Yeah. You know, so. All right. We're going to leave it there. Gabrielle Lurie, Megan Cassidy from the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks for your work and thanks for joining us today. That is it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is Christopher Beal. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. You can get more politics coverage at the KQED Political Breakdown newsletter. That's at kqed.org slash newsletters. And do read the entire set of stories <laughs> Before you criticize ladies. Us. I'm Marisa Lagos. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. I'm Randal Fatah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 
That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.